joining uh, this episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. Uh, this week, my guest is Jack Daniel. Uh, according to uh, his LinkedIn profile, he is a community builder, storyteller, technologist, and security professional. Uh, not necessarily in that order. I will let him uh, clarify. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and just someone that I've, I've uh, known and respected for a, a long, long time. Uh, but uh, welcome, Jack. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Um, uh, you know, so I say I've, I've I've known you for a long time. I don't remember the the first year we we actually met in person. Uh, it was you know many many years ago. Um, but one of the things, even before we met in person, just when I was kind of getting into the information security community and kind of digging in, um, you had initially struck me as one of the people, uh, one of the the people that seemed few and far between at the time, who was welcoming and helpful. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of, you know, very, a lot of, you know, trolling and judgment. I mean, if you tried to get in on, you know, on a conversation or join a forum or whatever of people, you know, just, you know, basically, if you weren't already in the click, you couldn't be in the click. Um, and, and I always felt like you were more inviting and willing to extend a hand and kind of say, well, let's, let's, you know, l l let me help you out. Yeah, thank, right, thank you. I, I certainly tried to be. I mean, I, I wouldn't have gotten where I was then and certainly wouldn't uh, be where I am now were it not for the help of a myriad of others, many, many more than I can uh, recount here. And with that in mind, it seems like the uh, just the decent thing to do is to make yourself available. Now, that's not always possible. You know, sometimes you see somebody at one of the big conferences and they're running down the hall and they don't, uh, you know, you, you really can't always stop and, and chat. But when when you have the ability to do it, it seems like the right thing to do. And it certainly has, um, it wasn't my goal, but it certainly worked well for me to to build a network of, of friends and acquaintances just based on uh, making sure I, I, whenever possible, I, I took the time to uh, to stop and talk to people. Yeah. especially those uh, starting in the industry or transitioning into the industry or, or struggling with the, uh, with a battle, whether it was stuff like the, the more, you know, the burnout stuff that I've been involved in or, you know, just minor annoyances. It uh, seems to be that uh, we sometimes get a little too wound up and uh, not to get political, but the, the current state of the world is a little polarized. So uh, the more often we can just take a deep breath and, act like, I don't know, people, the better, I think. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's you know, a connection with, uh, you know, one of my other uh, favorite people who I also feel is someone who really has, you know, good karma and pays it forward and, and really goes out of his way to help everyone, uh, which is Marcus Carey. Uh, and I know, you know, like I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, 
uh, and you know he has the whole tribe of hackers, which uh, you were took part in or whatever. Um, and I think that 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 whole thing I think was an excellent uh, sort of exercise in just gather the, the ability to take you know seventy different people, ask them the same set of questions, and then kind of go through the answers is it, it's, it's very insightful to kind of go through it and kind of see the Venn diagram of, okay, well, wh what, what do, what, what do all 70 people sort of agree on and, and what are kind of the outliers of, you know, different perspectives and, and, and stuff. I mean, so it's a really neat, an, a neat project. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the diversity of people that have come into the industry um, and not just into the industry and in the, in the hacker community, those that are, you know, enthusiasts, uh, who often have the luxury of being able to do what they feel like doing rather than what they get paid to do. Um, they don't have the resources maybe that some of us do, but uh, the the perspectives that we bring, our personal experiences and viewpoints um, bring us a, a diverse group of people with a di diverse group of ideas. So as you said, it's really interesting to see where where those things line up and where they diverge. And, you know, that's, uh, that is the strength of, of the hacker crowd when done well. Um, we certainly aren't uh, aren't above the uh, the strife that happens out there. There's certainly, we certainly have our trolls, but uh, the number of just truly amazing people who are willing to share, eager to share, is uh, is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so you know, we're just now coming off of uh, RSA. Uh, you know, the the big uh, big party in San Francisco. Um, uh, I, I'm still actually just kind of digging out uh, I think, I think this week I'll finally get back to normal. Um, but I was curious, you know, your thoughts on the week. Uh, like I, 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 I'm not even sure. Cause I didn't see you. Um, uh, I know I heard you were there because uh, yeah, I, I, I ran into Ron Gula and I ran into Jeff Mann, And uh, yeah, so I, 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 I heard you were there, but I figured you folks. were probably was, busy with B sides. Right. I was, I was at uh, an event I do on Sunday night and I was at uh, B sides on Sat on Sunday uh, Monday uh, overwhelmed me playing, trying to play catch up with life. I'm doing a, a handful of different things which uh, consume my time. Didn't have a lot of responsibilities at the event per se. Did some uh, interviews for RSA, uh, hung out with uh, my friends over at Veracode, um, caught up with uh, a variety of friends in formal and informal meetings and of course a few of the parties. But actually this year was a little bit more under the radar, uh, more scheduled meetings and fewer general big parties. Uh, first time I, I remember missing security blogger meetup uh, just because there's some friends in the Bay Area that I don't see often enough. And uh, I had the opportunity to hang out with people that I never see. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. So I wasn't around as much, but I was certainly there. And it was an interesting year. There was a lot of grumbling about how much um, new there was or wasn't. There was a lot of grumbling about the state of the city of San Francisco itself. Um, the I think there were a lot of uh, myopic complaints about the situation with homeless people. Not going to get political, but the, the situation in San Francisco is um, unfortunate is a very mild way to put the, yeah. the the commentary about San Francisco. Los Angeles is, is similar. I now live in Jacksonville, Florida. We have our own issues. Um, these, these aren't simple problems. The fact that there are homeless people uh, in your way, is a societal problem, not a, a problem for RSA. But that said, the grumbling has grown year over year. And this year, there were a lot of people really unhappy with uh, 
not the venue. I mean, the Moscone finished their expansion. I was wandering around like, didn't there used to be a wall here? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. there's, it's just huge. Yeah. Uh, that said, the city of San Francisco is, uh, is bursting at the seams with uh, a variety of issues, including overpopulation, high costs and other things. Cost of hotels is insane there. Um, it is where we all get together, but I don't know that it needs to be in San Francisco. And I know the folks at RSA conference are really struggling with that because it's, it's a San Francisco thing, but you know, good, good luck finding a hotel room for under $400 a night, um, within five, well, within 10 miles. Yeah. Um, it, it's a zoo and you know, the, the transit there, it's, it's one of the things I've observed. I actually put it on Twitter. It's like, ah. So it's it's only a mile and a half away, so it's going to be faster to walk than to drive or to get a car. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I think that if the weather's anything but pouring rain and high winds, walking anywhere from the Moscone area in Financial District, Union Square, uh, Tenderloin, uh, in North Beach, it's faster to walk than get a car. Uh, so, you know, they've, they've grown up. But what happens there? We all get there. You know, we didn't you and I didn't see each other this year. But whether you choose the W Bar or the Samovar Tea House or uh, Sears for breakfast or whatever hangout you hit, um, we're all there. There are 50,000 people there, and it's where we meet. Uh, it is where we come to meet, and uh, a lot of business gets done. A lot of people like to make fun of the, you know, the, the exorbitant the, the madness, I think is a better word, the madness of the, the expo floor. But we're there, and a lot of business happens uh, on the periphery of that event. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to actually touch on a, a few of the things you you, you mentioned. Um, first, the, like the security bloggers meetup. I mean, honestly, for me, that has become sort of the focal point. It's like the reason for going, and then and then I build my calendar around that. Um, but I like you. I also have I have a friend who lives in the Bay Area, and I have a cousin who lives in LA, uh, but works in the security industry who, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him for probably 15 years until I ran into him at RSA last year. And so, you know, I've, I actually like canceled and moved some things, um, so that I could go to dinner with my friend and so that I could go have a drink with my cousin. Um, because that's one of the great things about, you know, being in San Francisco for that event are those opportunities. Um, in terms of the transit, I think it's funny. I, uh, uh, we, we were staying at the Hotel Carlton, which is actually one of the, you know, accepted or whatever. It's one of the venues that's part of the uh, part of RSA. Um, and it, but it's like a mile and a half away. And then that's not super far, except for that the weather was crappy this week, uh, this this year. Um, and when I got there, there's a big thing in the in the lobby that says, you know, there's a shuttle. I said, cool. So I went to bed. I got up the next morning, went down. Oh no, morning. you didn't trust the shuttle, did you? Well, yes and no. I mean, I was I didn't, it was not a time crunch, so it was fine. But I went downstairs and I said to the, I stood there for a minute and I said, hey, where do I get this shuttle? And he says, well, our pickup point is actually at the like Hilton Union Square or, or something. So he's like, you just walk down here and hang right and then go over there. And I said, so let me get this straight. You're telling me that if I walk the first mile in the rain on my own, there's a bus that will take me the last half mile. <laughs> and he was like, well, yeah, basically. And I was like, I'll just walk. I mean, by that point, I'm already wet. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost there. Uh, and, and, and 
frankly, I, instead of waiting another 15 minutes for the shuttle to show up, I could just be there. Uh, so yeah, I just, I just walked all week, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, just got wet. Yep. That's, uh, that, that, that happens in San Francisco. Yeah. The, the transit, I mean, they, they make it so you can, um, take the shuttles, but you can't expect to get anywhere quickly and trying to navigate full-size buses through union square and South market is, uh, challenging to put it mildly. Um, and I actually enjoy walking. I didn't walk as I, I love walking in San Francisco. You just have to know where the hills are. Don't look at the map uh, <laughs> and assume that you can, you know, go from um, go from Union Square to uh, the Embarcadero, uh, you know, the, the far side to Fisherman's Wharf without a bit of a climb, to put it mildly. Yeah. But uh, it's it's a great walking city. Um, unfortunately, I blew out a Achilles tendon. About a month ago, and so I, I, I kind of capped myself at about six or eight miles a day, which that um, yeah, was adequate. You know, it's adequate. But the, you know, the the food and drink in the city is fantastic. It's a great place to uh, to get out. But the the transit is is a problem getting in and out. It's a hike from the airport. It's, you know, Bart is pretty good if you're traveling light enough and and are comfortable with public transit. Uh, but it's, it's out there, um, down South. And so coming up, uh, coming up the highway from there, whether you're Lyft or Uber or taxi or shuttle bus, it's a, it's a hike to get in there. I'm not sure uh, what we do with that, with that situation. Yeah. There are all sorts of, but like I said, like I keep saying, you know, the, the meetings that happen on the, on the periphery, the, the business that's conducted at the top or bottom of the escalators on the South side is, uh, is you know greater than probably most other security conferences just based on what happens at the top and bottom of those escalators i'd say is a, is a substantial part of our industry well and yeah, so I, I have this thing like you know i've been going i think this was my 11th rsa uh but uh every year uh I say to my wife hey this is when rsa is i'm going to be out of town that week and and there's always some disgruntled sort of, oh, you're just going to hang out with your friends and party again. And I'm sort of like, well, you know, yes. <laughs> like, I, that is not an untrue statement. However, that is also where, uh, you know, for, from the standpoint of, you know, what I do with uh, TechSpective and from the standpoint of what I do as a freelance, uh, you know, content creator uh, working with other vendors, the conversations that I have there are where, most of that business for the year comes from. I mean that you know RSA oh, yeah, RSA is the is the the uh, focal point of of getting business done. Um, but you know I, I I you also talked about how you know we've kind of stretched the resources of what that area can offer, uh, which I agree with because what I've noticed what I noticed this year is you know. Or actually, let me take take a step back. You know, when I first started going, it was basically just Moscone, uh, you know, north and a little bit of Moscone south, or vice versa. Um, over time, it filled both of those. It's kind of spilled over. Now we're you know, I got Moscone west. You got things going on over at the Marriott Marquis, um, and it, it 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 the event itself has expanded. And then you add in things like like B sides uh, and like uh, I guess there's, there's a couple other side events that are really, I, I guess, technically part of RSA, but they're still side events like the Cloud Security Alliance Summit or the DevSecOps, DevOps Connect. Um, and it's like there's, there are all these like 
it's not even just RSA anymore. It's like there's five or six different events going on simultaneously that week that all revolve around information security. And it, what, what I, this, this was a bad year for this to happen because of the weather, but I noticed that vendors kind of moved out some in terms of like trying to have their, their events and parties instead of just going, you know, up the block to the thirsty bear or whatever. Um, you know, there were parties that were like, you know, two miles this way or a mile and a half that way, which would be fine if the, if it was dry, <laughs> but like, you know, on, on, on one given night, I think I had like, you know, three or four overlapping parties that I would normally try to bounce around and go to all of them. Uh, but it was pouring rain. And so I just picked one, I stayed there and then I Ubered back to the hotel. Um, but you know, to, to, the, to so to kind of stop rambling and bring, bring it back to the point. Um, yeah, I feel like, you know, we're, we're really kind of starting to max out what's available there, both in terms of the, the conference space, the hotel space and the, you know, restaurant and, and event space. And, um, you know, we can keep kind of sprawling out further. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know what, you know, what else you do, just, you know, move, move it to Vegas and make it, you know, black hat, black hat too. Yeah. I mean, that, that is their challenge because uh, San Francisco is, as you said, you know, things are getting further and further afield because you, <laughs> there are only so many people that can uh, rent a, a corner of the thirsty bear. There are only so many people that can, uh, you know, grab, uh, one or the other of the various venues. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge. I will say this about the, uh, the leaving the family behind thing. At least this year, it wasn't on Valentine's Day, which, yes. um, you know, which for several years, it was Valentine's Day, uh, which for me was, uh, was usually a double whammy because my, uh, my anniversary was uh, uh, two days after Valentine's Day. So there were many RSAs where I left uh, and missed both Valentine's and the anniversary. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, the, the timing, but, you know, they do it when they can do it. They do it when they can get the whole Moscone and they can, you know, there's nothing else happening that would you know, consume too many hotel rooms. And where do you go? Where do you go? Do you go to um, LA that uh, has a different set of issues? Um, where, where can you be that centralized, that and walkable? That's not really right. an LA thing. Uh, Vegas. All right. Then you, you go to um, go to that. And then the challenge there is where do you put 50,000 people do you, I think that uh, may require going to the uh, convention center. That's not as walkable to all the hotels. The show, you know, the, the right. monorail is not as handy. I mean, we've all spent more than enough time in Vegas and it's one thing. Uh, I mean, even DEF CON now is, is spanning three hotels this coming summer because that's how big DEF CON has gotten. They can't go to the one you know, their, their options would be go to the Sands Convention Center, but then you lose the hotel ability uh, and Mandalay is consumed with Black Hat. So the the places for them to go are, are fairly limited. You know, they're not going to move it to, New, or to uh, New Orleans or one of the other big conference cities. So we're, I don't know. I don't know what they do. I think what, uh, I think my plan is to keep going and uh, complaining about it a little bit, but <laughs> trying to keep in mind that it's, uh, you know, it is it is the beast that it is. Um, but yeah, it, it's certainly bursting at the seams and, uh, there's some real challenges there and people that aren't, uh, used to cities, um, get a real shock, uh, a rude shock when they see what urban life is like in California, you know, the California tries to provide some, some resources for mental and physical health and addiction, 
Uh, they certainly don't have enough to handle everything they get, but that makes them somewhat of a magnet plus the weather. Um, it's not like trying to, you know, survive a winter uh, right, you know, on right. the street in Chicago. <laughs> so it's a magnet. And if you haven't experienced that, um, it's a shock and it's an embarrassment um, as a society. But that's uh, unfortunately modern life is some realities that uh, aren't pretty. Yeah. Um, so let's switch gears slightly. I want to talk about uh, B-Sides. You are a co-founder of B-Sides. Is this the, I don't know if it's the 10th year? 10th year, yeah. This uh, this summer uh, will be the 10-year anniversary. The first B-Sides event was in late July of 2009. And in early August, we'll be back in Vegas for our 10-year anniversary, 11th event. That'll be a, a, a bit of a party. We're the uh, same venue as before for Vegas. But uh, B-Sides is way more than, you know, B-Sides Las Vegas. Uh, they just had one in Canberra, which had... Uh, over 2,300 people participate. Um, and as much as the big ones uh, get some, make some noise, you know, there are events that have a few dozen people that are in places that otherwise have no options and, and no, right. um, no conference. And it really connects the, the communities, large and small. Well, and that's what's awesome, really. Uh, so I, I had a conversation with someone um, at RSA. We were talking about uh, you know, a little bit of what you and I were just talking about, about the kind of the, the, the evolution of RSA and, and, and what it's grown to become. And I said, you know, again, I've been going there for a little over 10 years. And, uh, you know, initially I felt like RSA was the, the conference for the information security, for the, for the security vendors, and that Black Hat was more the conference for the security practitioners. And then DEF CON was for the, you know, gray hat-ish <laughs> hackers. And I feel like everything has kind of shifted since then, where it's like RSA has kind of just you know, grown by you know leaps and bounds. It's still like the, the thing for vendors, but I feel like Black Hat has also become more vendor-ish and that DEF CON has kind of grown up to fill the void of what Black Hat used to be. But then, you know, B-Sides is... Uh, become a thing of its own and and because yeah, and because of the 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 volume of events like i mean when you look at the map on the b-side site uh, and you look at like all the places where these conferences go on i think that is you know part of what really makes it amazing i mean yes the first thing i think of when i think of b-sides is b-side san francisco and b-sides las vegas because they're sort of the the counter conferences to rsa and black hat uh but uh but yeah, it's that it's the it's the kind of global community of conferences that I think makes B sides amazing. Yeah, it is, and I, uh, at the risk of offending a lot of my friends who are substantially younger than me, uh, but I do have an observation about DefCon and, and your comment about gray hats. Is uh, as DefCon has evolved and aged, uh, a lot of those gray hats have become uh, gray haired and are in the industry now. Yeah. And it's, that's changed the complexion of large parts of DEF CON. It still is full of, um, you know, forgive me, hacker children. But uh, like I said, a lot of the gray hats have become gray hairs and they have like titles and jobs and stuff. Uh, so it's, the well, evolution is interesting. And you know, uh, so, well, uh, let's stay on, on, on B-Size for a second. Um, you know, one of the things that... Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of sort of how it sprung up in the first place was kind of, you know, 
the conferences have their you know call for uh, you know, presentations and you know people submit their ideas and there's hundreds of ideas and most of them get rejected um, but a lot of those ideas are actually very good and you know besides kind of said hey well why don't we take some of those ideas and just present them <laughs> like we'll go ahead and have a conference where, where we get to talk about those presentations um, and you know so I think in terms of like not vendor pitches but in terms in terms of actual like usable information i feel like you know b sides is has kind of surpassed uh you know what is available at rsa and black hat and then there's some and there are some good sessions i mean there are some things you can learn a thing from um at, at rsa and b rsa and black hat uh but but uh, b sides like i said has kind of become that's where the hands-on practitioners go to speak to yeah. each other there's there's certainly that you know um let's backing up a little bit so yeah that was primarily at the if you go back a decade that was when a lot of us had come together on twitter a lot of folks in the hacker community a lot of people in the the infosec community the more engaged people had landed on twitter uh, jen leggio gets a shout out because she was uh, at fortinet at the time and was traveling and realized figured this out and started playing connect the dots so the a handful of us like um, like Zach Lanier and, and um, Chris Hoff and others that were in the Boston area, you know, we all stayed in touch with via Twitter and she started connecting the dots with people that we normally only saw at Black Hat or DEFCON or RSA, maybe at ShmooCon or one of the other events. And so there was a community of security professionals, hacker types on Twitter when the rejections went out for Black Hat and DEFCON. It was primarily Black Hat and a conversation sprung up about who got turned down and why. And a lot of them are turned down because, you know, they, they need to, uh, you know, they get hundreds of submissions and they don't have that many spaces. So some get turned down and some of them were like, yeah, you've been telling the same story for three years, come up with something new, or they must've gotten 30 talks on this topic. They had to pick, you know, one or two, but then we did see some things that were really interesting, but they weren't necessarily interesting for hundreds or thousands of people, which is what Black Hat needs to fill a room or, or DEF CON, uh, but particularly Black Hat. And that was as Black Hat was in transition. Jeff uh, Moss, Dark Tangent, had sold it to, um, it was always the, the commercial spinoff from DEF CON, and he had sold it to UBM, the, the media conglomerate. And UBM was trying to figure out how to deal with something that you charge $2,000 a head for, you know, give or take. Uh, but also required a huge community engagement and a lot of volunteers to make it work. And uh, they were trying to commercialize it and figure out how to balance um, the the commercialization of Black Hat. And so there were these undercurrents of over-commercialization with a bunch of interesting content that uh, maybe just wasn't right for Black Hat. And so we said, why don't we, you know, why don't we make something happen? And we did. And it was, it was good. You know, there were talks, there were 12 people sat in the room and there were talks where there were, you know, 60 people in the room. And some of them were just things that you were never going to hear at um, Black Hat. Other ones that ended up being, there were ones where you needed to make sure that uh, there was no press and no recording so people could speak candidly about things. And it wasn't always, you know, Black Hat stuff. It was, I need to say some really candid things about these network vendors because I work with them all day, every day. But if I say it on record, the company I work for gets in trouble. There were things like that. So it was a very um, open, if you were in the room thing. And, you know, one of the, the best attended and most talked about uh, session that first year was uh, the, um, 
a panel that Aaron Jacobs, Sec Barbie, put together on uh, Feathers Will Fly. It was a conversation about gender issues in information security. That was in July of 2009. Uh, that one repeated in San Francisco uh, seven, eight months later in the, the first B-Sides San Francisco. And that was a topic that uh, was many years later before the other conferences picked up on uh, gender issues and diversity in the industry. So it was, uh, it, you know, in that case, many years ahead. Other times it's just stuff that 12 people are interested in. And that's, you know, you, you can't fault Black Hat for um, not taking talks that will put 12 people in a room. Uh, you know, that said, right, it, it's it's worth noting that, you know, Black Hat has figured out how to treat their volunteers better. They have dramatically expanded and diversified the content that they have uh, in their program. Last year, they introduced the community track, which brought in a lot of the social and mental health and health and well-being sort of uh, aspects, which uh, was was due. And, you know, Black Hat has grown to be able to support that part of the community, which used to be, you pretty much had to be at uh, B-Sides to hear those things. They've uh, segmented off the expo area a lot more than it used to be. So it's easier to avoid the uh, the expo part if that uh, is not your interest. So I think Black Hat is um, a vastly better event these days than it was then. It's grown dramatically. It's moved to Mandalay. I think it's, um, it is a great event. It's certainly more you know commercial. But I think that uh, Black Hat has hit their stride and they're doing what Black Hat does well, very well. You know, Defcon's struggling to maintain that the hacker vibe while having outgrown all of the smaller places that uh, were more welcoming. So this year it's spanning the three hotels, and it'll be interesting trying to bounce from one to another. Yeah, it's fun in Vegas. Uh, you know, like I, it, outside of information security, I also uh, the last two years I've gone to the uh, uh, Amazon's uh, AWS reInvent conference, um, and that is a conference of you know fifty thousand plus people. Uh, in Vegas, um, and it's basically you know at the Sands Convention Center, but they've got stuff going on all up and down the Strip, and it's like a logistical nightmare, <laughs> really, to try to figure out how to, because it you know like you take what you're talking about with San Francisco, it's as bad or worse in Vegas. Like you're only trying to go straight up the one road, and that can still take you you know 40 minutes, <laughs> and. Uh, I mean, they offer shuttles, but uh, yeah, getting getting around from the from hotel to hotel in Vegas is uh, it's deceiving um, because you, you like I you know I've been staying at like you know if you're if if you've never been to Vegas or if you don't know what Vegas looks like this won't make a whole lot of sense but you know if you're staying at like Mandalay Bay and you think oh I'm going to go over to the Luxor it's like well it's right next door but you start walking and find out that you know by the time you get out of your room walk all the way down the hall to the elevator, take the elevator down, walk all the way through the casino to get to the door, walk outside or take whatever like tunnel, you know, walkway thing there is connecting them under underground or whatever. I mean, you can walk a mile and a half, two miles to get to the hotel next door. So, you know, that's, it, it's, it's, it's uh, not, uh, I guess all that to say, it's not real fun when you're, when you're spanning multiple hotels. You know, I, I, I like, I like when you're you know, when you go to Black Hat and it is only at Mandalay or when it was like only at Caesars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's one thing to walk around San Francisco in April uh, or March or even February, 
Walking uh, in Vegas, first of all, it's not a walking It's not designed to be walkable. And second, uh, you know, in the middle of the summer when Black Hat and DEF CON are, it's not fun. It, it is a challenge to, to scale. Uh, it, you know, I came out of the auto industry where the automobile dealers convention um, is, is what I saw before. And that's a ridiculously a large event. I don't know what the numbers are these days, but it was certainly tens of thousands then. And I've I've attended things that are, you know, last time I did the uh, Con Expo, the construction management exposition, it was 175,000 people. And that starts to make uh, Las Vegas bulge a little bit. Um, couldn't get cabs, couldn't get uh, things. But, you know, th it's a challenge of, of scale. And I, you know, hmm. It's great. Vegas has its issues. It's one of the reasons I like where uh, besides Las Vegas has been the past several years and will be this year. It's Tuscany, we're we're bursting at the seams because we're you know at capacity, but we're about a quarter mile off strip and we're on Flamingo, which means that we can head uh, away from the strip and then run up and down Paradise to uh, get places. And it's certainly faster to run parallel to the strip, but it's such a choke point. The you know the entire city just comes to a, a screeching halt. And if you're trying to do shuttle buses or something, there's no choice but to go up and down the strip for part of it. And it's an absolute nightmare. So yeah. it's a, uh, it's a challenge. Well, um, anyway, so, I mean, uh, just to kind of tie that up, just, uh, yeah. I, you know, thank, thank, thank you for your part in, uh, in, in, in creating B-sides. And, uh, I think, it, like yeah. I said, that's a, yeah, it's, I, I get too much credit, but I do have the luxury of having been at Astaro, when uh, we started off, when we kicked off B-Sides and uh, the folks at Astaro completely understood, you know, they got it. And then um, about eight years ago when I joined Tenable, um, Ron and Jack and Renault absolutely understand it as folks that, you know, came out of community. And so they've continued to support my ability to spend a lot of time uh, managing B-Sides. So I've I've been involved since uh, before the first one and mostly play cheerleader, mentor, and do a fair amount of administrative uh, tedium. And uh, then tens of thousands of people around the world make do all of the rest of it. Absolutely. Um, so let's come back then to uh, you know I started off talking about uh, you know that I feel like you're you're one of the people who has uh, kind of gone out of your way to to reach out and to help people. Um, and you know I want to talk about two other things that you're in, involved in or, or related to in some way. One is the uh, the shoulders of Infosec project. And then the other is the uh, Security Voices podcast you just uh, started doing. Um, but uh, you know, let, let, let's start with the shoulders of Infosec. You know, or, uh, first of all, did you did you actually start it? Like, I see that it's linked on your on your LinkedIn. Yeah, that's actually so. That one was years ago. I was invited to speak at maybe the second ever DerbyCon. I don't remember. It was one of the early, one of the first couple of years. It wasn't the first year. I think it was the second year, but. Um, might have been third. Anyway, one of the early Derby cons, I was asked to speak and I needed to come up with something fresh. And I had been thinking about uh, having transitioned into the industry from the car business and always running and had, you know, started to make friends with people like uh, Becky Bass and uh, Gene Spafford, SPAF, and other folks like that that had been, you know, in this space for a long time and were, were more foundational figures. And from them, I learned about people like Bob Abbott and uh, you know, dug into things, stumbled across the Ware report, dug into what who uh, Willis Ware was, and I started to realize how little I knew about what this industry was that I was in, how we how we got where we are, and who got us here. 
So I thought I'd do a talk on that. I figured it's great. You know, everybody's facing the same battle. Let me, let me put some uh, thought into this and I'll give a talk and introduce people to, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 people. And that's it. But once I started digging in, I asked a, a bunch of the, the tribal elders. I dug into material from um, the Babbage Institute at the University of Minnesota, dug into some stuff from the Maltitians uh, site, and I just found this treasure trove of information. Some of it was slipping away, um, found a lot of interesting things. And so I said, well, all right, uh, I have a whole bunch of disjointed information and some I've got a lot on and some I've got a little on. Let's put it in Excel. And I said, well, that's not too shareable. So I threw up a wiki and just started putting data in, putting data in, and it's due for a refresh. I need to reshuffle it, but that has grown and grown. And I continue to do talks on historical figures in hacker and uh, infosec. And I've specifically avoided the the hacker culture in general. There's certainly some of that on the website, but I think there are other people that are better equipped to be historians for that. Um, whether it's Jason Scott or others have some, some hacker history stuff, uh, I think we have the luxury of some time to uh, to record that. Uh, the, some, you know, a lot of the folks that are on the the Shoulders Wiki and her in the talks that I give on the Shoulders of Infosec project, uh, you know, the the commentary I have on them is from their obituaries and uh, tributes to them. So before we lose any more, I thought I would launch that, and it just has taken off, and it kind of goes with a punctuated equilibrium. Every now and then, I get a, a kick and jump in and add some new folks and tweak it. And now I need to reorganize it to make it a little easier to find folks, but it's, um, you know, there, there are stories that we haven't hold. One of the, one of the things I love doing is, is pointing out that these are actual human beings with, with real ideas. You know, we all talk about RSA, but, um, Ron and Lynn, it, it, they're real people. They have real passions uh, as we discovered, uh, when one of the trio wasn't at RSA, they have some opinions about the state of uh, the state of politics in the world these days. Uh, so I like to tell the stories a, a little bit of what these people are like and what they were or what they were like. Some of the lesser known stories, some of the this, uh, other people that are easy to overlook. Also like to look at some of the history, some of the reports that they did. I mentioned the Ware report. The Some people put uh, too much into it, but I think uh, it is significant. It has aged very well for something that uh, started publicate or started uh, being drafted in 67, as I recall. Final was 71. If you change a few words and change some labels on a couple of images that are there, it's amazingly uh, relevant. There's some other ones that didn't age as well, but they're still um, certainly more relevant than the Orange Book. Uh, the Orange Book, I think, uh, was a great idea until it interacted with trying to let people actually do their jobs. I think that was the real challenge with the orange book. And I think Steve Lipner told that story a whole lot more eloquently than I just did in a paper he wrote a few years ago. Well, but it's, you know, where we get, where we came from, you know, it's, yeah. it's telling those stories and giving a little perspective. And it's one of the things that, uh, you know, part of it is if you Google it and it doesn't come up in Google, it didn't exist for a couple of generations of people. And it turns out that, there was life before Google. Uh, there was uh, life before uh, computers were in the home or <laughs> there was life before computers were in the office. And a lot of that stuff is hard to find. Yeah. And I, and I think it's good to acknowledge that, you know, yes, we have, you know, the, there, there are lots of ideas 
you know, I, like I said, we just came from RSA. There's plenty of ideas. Some of them are uh, crap, <laughs> and some of them are very creative and innovative, and and could be the next big thing. Uh, but regardless, uh, you know, it, it is it is standing on the shoulders uh, right, of right. of everything that came before it. Um, you know, people aren't coming up with these ideas in a vacuum. Right. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I, I do like to stress in it that just because the idea may have happened uh, before you doesn't mean you can't do things with it that other people haven't. It doesn't mean you can't take advantage of it, but it means we should recognize that we all do, you know, we're all building on it. Everybody that is self-taught is self-taught by using software that somebody else wrote and digging in forums that other people participate in. And uh, self-taught doesn't mean that you didn't have teachers. It just means that you curated your own education and that content came from elsewhere. Um, so that's, that's one of the things, you know, I like to, to point out is that, you know, we've, we've all got these things and the questions of how, who's, who did what, why, when we can't connect all the dots, but we, it does help to understand that, uh, you know, the, the security industry came out of a couple of specific directions, came out of military security, which makes, you know, sense. And it also, and uh, spycraft, but it also came out of uh, the opposite of government stuff. It, you know, um, Ron Revest is a huge privacy advocate, as is Whit Diffie. And everybody that we think of as in those pioneers of crypto, cryptography, um, they were trying to secure the privacy and of, uh, of citizens. And so there are these bases. That's why so much of early stuff is cryptographic. So the cryptography to defend uh, governments and militaries, cryptography to defend individual citizens, that's what we came out of. And uh, the structures have just uh, grown from there for better and for worse. Yeah. So then, you know, so then now let's just kind of flip the coin and talk about the Security Voices podcast, which I feel is in some ways... Uh, really, the, the the other side of that coin, which is, you know, you've got the shoulders uh, of uh, uh, of Infosec talking about, you know, these are the, the, the people that we're we're building on, these are the, the the greats who came before us, so to speak, and then I feel like uh, the security voices is more of the, and these are the up and coming people, uh, these are some of the people that you know you 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 may not be familiar with, uh, and and. Now, although I thought it was funny because I saw the, the kind of the exchange uh, you had you had Wendy Nather on uh, and she she was on she was on my podcast a few weeks ago, um, and I think you know she's fairly uh, well known and respected in the yeah, industry. She, so she's she certainly not is. up and coming. <laughs> right, she's not. And you know some of these people are extremely well established that we've had on, and uh, but aren't known to everybody. And we are going to have more people coming on or people coming on that are. Newer and lesser known, but, you know, shh, don't tell anyone if we get uh, some names that draw some interest in at the beginning, which we've done uh, in, you know, application security, talking to um, Carrie, talking to uh, Zane Lackey. Uh, I'm, I'm doing production on an interview with Gary McGraw, the CISO perspective from Wendy and all of her other perspectives. You know, uh, John Dixon, who has both an executive perspective and an AppSec perspective, um, we get these people out there, get some interest, then uh, more people will be listening when the newer voices get uh, get time on the microphone. And so that's what we want to do and have interesting conversations. And we've done some application security stuff. We have some investor stuff coming up and it's uh, you know, going to start off talking with 
uh, the investor side, but we're certainly going to you know try to work into we are going to work into those who self fund or bootstrap. We have other ideas of what's going on, but we have uh, you know we're, we're fortunate enough to have you know quite a few uh, friends between uh, my, my friend Dave Cole and I. We've got a lot of people that we know in the industry and. Uh, adjacent to the industry and we sit down and have a great conversation with them and uh, see what happens. And that's where we are. We're having fun uh, as, as you're doing here, we're have good, have good conversations with interesting people and just go on from there. Very cool. Um, and for any listeners here, I highly suggest you go check out the security voices podcast, but um, all right. So as we kind of come into the, the home stretch, uh, I want to shift gears slightly uh, a little bit out of infosec really i want to talk about uh, two things that are more uh, uh jack daniel uh one is uh your uh, foray into uh stand-up comedy uh and the other is uh your uh mission to uh sort of hit all of the tiki bars in the united states <laughs> And, 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 you know, if you, you know, like some, some things you can share about that, uh, either, either, you know, favorite venues, uh, actually one thing I, I do have one request I want to wrap up with, which is, I, I, I want to know if you have a drink you can suggest to me that would be not something that I would have necessarily tried already, but that I should try. All right. We'll, we'll save that one. I'll stew on that one. So, um, uh, yeah, the stand-up comedy. I just I enjoy um, being in front of an audience. I always take it seriously, and so I've put some thought into my performance as a you know public speaker. And I went through some some uh, yeah life-altering things uh, a few years ago, and uh, stand-up was something that uh, I I turned to for a little levity and I'd been thinking about doing some stand-up. And so about a year and a half ago, I finally just walked up on stage at a uh, little dive bar in Savannah, Georgia, down on the river called Chuck's, which unfortunately closed last weekend. I hope they're going to relocate, but they're renovating the the whole block. So they're trying to find a new home. But anyway, good dive bar. And I got up on stage and told a few jokes and I liked it. It was not great. Open mic comedy nights, if people haven't done them, uh, they can be intimidating. Your most of the people there at most events are going to be other people who are thinking about being comics or are comics and working on material. So they're not there to laugh; they're there to hone their own craft. So they're uh, you know heads down in their notebooks or whatever in their phones. So it's it's not a a great thing, but it's you get a few laughs, and if you get a laugh from that audience, you know you've done okay. And I just started writing stuff and doing things, and I lived it. I uh, became a widower two and a half years ago, and. You know, my first attempt at being a single adult was at age 57. My wife and I were together from high school. So uh, I don't recommend that for anybody listening. If you're thinking about making your first foray into adulthood on your own, uh, coming in your late 50s, don't do not do that. Just don't. Uh, or have a notebook with you because it's going to be some funny stuff happening. And then <laughs> I started uh, dating, which I hadn't even mastered in high school. And, uh, so let's add those things together, started dating. Um, let's just say, you know, if it weren't for okay, Cupid, I never would have known my perfect match was a group of scammers in Nigeria. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it was, it was an interesting adventure and I just started writing these things down interesting things happened. I wrote them, uh, <laughs> very little embellishment and did, did more and more open mics. And I've done a, a few, 
little bit larger things. I actually did a, a full set about a year ago in uh, Baltimore at B-Sides Baltimore, and I, I continue to do it. So I, this year I've decided to put a little more effort into it. I've taken um, in-person uh, an intensive improv workshop at Second City in Hollywood, currently doing a um, an online writing course with Second City Chicago for comedy writing. And I'll be back in L.A., in Hollywood in July to do a five-day intensive in-person in the classrooms at Second City um, stand-up comedy workshop. And that that should be fun. And I'm, I'm just having fun. I'm not trying to change careers or anything. I am just having fun. It's great uh, getting in front of an audience, getting people to laugh, making fun of yourself and, uh, you know, writing stuff. And having moved to Florida in uh, December, uh, it's, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen the Florida man Twitter account, uh, the, the stuff <laughs> writes itself. Uh, and that's only the highlights. If you listen to the morning, you know, radio shows, it's the the lady that stole the car because her demons told her to. And, uh, you know, my favorite part of that story was the local news TV news station found her before the police did. <laughs> and they just walked up and started interviewing the car thief uh, waiting for the cops. Uh, it was like, that's kind of Florida. But anyway, so yeah, I'm I'm having fun with that, and I like to make people laugh. Laughter is good. It's good good therapy for, for me and for them. And uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm in a wonderful, happy relationship, and my material's drying up. So I have to take this writing workshop. I, and I'm I am kidding when I say unfortunately, I'm in yes. a great place now. But it is uh, it's not as good for the the comedy material. It, but, it's uh, funny because on a music, good trade off. I've noticed that with music, like Alanis Morissette's like debut album was phenomenal because it was full of like that kind of angst. And then like the follow-up album was like, eh, that's all right. Cause she, you know, you, you, she lost that edge. And uh, Christina Perry used to have very good right. angsty music. Then she got married and, and had a baby and now she's happy. And her, her most recent album was literally just a, an album of lullabies for her baby. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> what happened to the angsty stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, on the other hand, um, no, you know, we, we, we don't need them to, um, to go Amy Winehouse on us either. No, so no, there, there ought to be a happy medium. <laughs> we right, don't uh, need crash I, I and burn. I, uh, I don't, I don't begrudge them their happiness. It just, you right, know, it just right. takes a little away from their, uh, from their music. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, go ahead. Okay. I, I was just gonna say, and, and you know, it's, it's, uh, the, it's interesting to get in front of crowds and meet different people. And you, you do learn. One of the things that I've gotten better at as a public speaker is, uh, I always thought about the audience and tuned the, the material towards the audience, but I've gotten a little better tuning on the fly because there's nothing like realizing that um, just because the audience is full of college kids doesn't mean they know what you know. Um, much younger audiences, uh, kids that are in college now, um, they, they haven't even seen my cultural references on Nick at Night because they missed that, you know, it's so right, right. I've gotten better at that. I've also gotten better at steering the steering the the material as I go, even when it's not stand up. You know, there there's some jokes that just don't work unless you you have the the idea. If you've if you've never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, Trascaria, Fogo, or right. State Brazil, or one of the real ones, the uh, the joke that I wish dating were more like a Trascaria. You just get a card and you turn it red or green. That doesn't get laughs if you don't know what a churrascaria is or what the card's for. Although that would take some of the mystery out of dating. Sometimes I would be okay with less mystery in dating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw, but uh, uh, 
Will Smith, uh, you know, he turned 50 and he, he's doing this whole project of uh, he came up with like a bucket list of things he wants to do now that he's 50. Um, and, you know, one of them was like bungee jumping out of a helicopter. Uh, but one of the things on his list was stand up comedy. Uh, so he did a set like last week or whatever. It's on his podcast. Uh, and I thought I thought it was interesting because that was one of the things that was on his list of like the things he was most terrified of doing. And he went and he got Dave Chappelle to coach him. Uh, and, and, you know, and Dave, Dave Chappelle gave him the advice. He said, well, one of the keys is to be confident. And the reason you should be confident is you're Will Smith. Right. <laughs> I was like, right. I was like, and I just thought it was interesting that, you know, you think Will Smith has been performing on, on stage since he was like 16, 17, uh, you know, in front of tens of thousands. Uh, so I thought it was interesting that, to to hear him say how petrified he was of getting up and doing stand up. It's like it's a it's a much more vulnerable uh, yeah, you're, way you're of interacting. Exposed. Yeah, you're exposed. And let me tell you the uh, the silence of six disapproving people in a dimly lit bar is deafening. It, it's, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, and to your other your question about uh, tiki bars, it's just a thing that I fell in love with the 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 fun of tiki and uh, you know at the end of the the original tiki craze by the you know by the 70s uh, it was all sugary syrupy drinks and really overdone clichés and a lot of just meaningless cultural appropriation but it started out uh, in the 30s and 40s I mean bef- even before the war the the couple that were out there were um, Vic Bergeron followed after Don Beach on the Beachcomber and they were, you know, really high-end, multi-ingredient, fresh juice, home, you know, house-made syrups, uh, lots of spices. They were very complex and high-end drinks, and that's where they came from. And that became more and more uh, commercialized after World War II. Uh, folks that came back from the Pacific Theater brought this interest in that sort of, uh, you know, faux Polynesian or uh, Pacific um, vibe, and uh, the prosperity that came in the fifties uh, allowed for that, but the prosperity came at a cost of the amount of work that it took to do that. And as a result, uh, escapism was a thing and tiki bars, you know, proper tiki bars by the fifties and early sixties tended to be nondescript buildings on the outside. And then you walked in and there were no windows and you were transported somewhere else. There was no way to understand that you had, um, you were just, uh, you know, one, one concrete block thickness away from the, the real world. And so you had the, the crazy music and the, uh, you know, the exotica music, you know, the, the Les Baxter and Martin Denny and all of those guys doing their things, Arthur Lyman. And you had these exotic cocktails with fresh fruit juices and rum, which was an ex- a thing that you know, wasn't common at that time. And then it got over-commercialized. And then there's been a revival in the past, you know, 15 or so years. And I've found a lot of tiki bars. It's a great place because if you're not pretentious about it, and believe it or not, there are people who call themselves things like tiki aficionados. It's like, get over yourself. Proper tiki bar should be pretty much a dive bar with some bunch of cool stuff. Uh, but it's, they're great places to strike up conversations. People are tend to be conversational. Tiki bars do not have uh, sports on TV in them. Um, if they do, they're not really a tiki bar. You know, so they're great places to go. And when you're on the road, as much as I am, it's sort of a it's sort of a thing to add to the the what am I going to do? I've got a, a night down in wherever I am, you know, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
like, oh, right, there's that tiki bar that's been here a couple of years. Let's go check it out. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of that one. It's pretty good, you know. Uh, and I've made some uh, real friends in the uh, in the space. You know, the Frankie's Tiki Room in Las Vegas, I discovered shortly after they opened, been going there for almost 10 years. I was there in December for their 10-year uh, anniversary party. It's fantastic. You know, the, the crew there are all friends, you know, for real friends. Go and hang out with them, not necessarily, not just at the bar. And it just makes the the travel, you know, whatever you're into. I mean, if you're into... If you're into modern art, you know, hit the hit the Museum of Modern Art as you go to these places, you know, as you travel. If you're into um, some kind of dining, do that. But for me, Tiki is fun. They're kitschy and corny. And they're places, old school places like the Tonga Room in San Francisco at the Fairmont Hotel that's been there for decades. There are newer places like uh, Forbidden Island and uh, uh, Zombie Village, which are owned by the same folks that own uh, Bourbon and Branch, which are... Tenderloin and Financial District in San Francisco, although I tend to, I, I still love um, the amazing rum selection over at Smuggler's Cove, but they're, you know, they're all over the place. I've been in tiki bars that in basements in Glasgow. I've been in tiki bars in Oslo. I've been in tiki bars in basements in hip west end of London. And I've been in, you know, tiki bars in Fort Lauderdale and uh, San Francisco and LA where you expect them to be. And it's, it's just fun. It's just fun. And, uh, you know, with, with that, you asked about a cocktail and I can go all sorts of directions, uh, but I'll, I'll give you two that are, uh, very different. One is the, uh, the Brazilian national drink, the Caipirinha made with cachaça, which is a crude, uh, it's basically sugarcane hooch. Uh, sometimes they call it rum, but it's not quite uh, proper rum. But uh, the, the way you make it is it is cachaça. You take a lime, chop it up into chunks, throw sugar on top of it, muddle it until you have a sweet, sticky lime juice, including the oil from the um, limes. Throw in the cachaça and ice, uh, mix the heck out of it, and it's uh, grown-up limeade. It's cheap, it's easy, it's wonderful. Um, some of the cheapest cachaça out there is the stuff to use. Belo Brario, if you can find it, is uh, dirt cheap. So for 20 bucks, you've got a party. Um, and it's it's great. And uh, you know, there are a lot of mediocre ones that people make, but that's just fun. Seriously, when I lived on Cape Cod where we had a big Brazilian population, I think I was paying $15 a liter for the, the cachaça that I like bag of limes, a small thing of sugar, and you literally have a party. Um, the other one that I'll throw out is is an old school New Orleans classic, but uh, the Sazerac, um, instead of doing it with rye, which is the common way to do it, um, try try one with uh, brandy or uh, better yet, cognac. And it's just an even older school, old school New Orleans classic. And it's uh, pretty simple to make. It's, it's you know, a glorified old fashioned if I were to oversimplify it, but it's, uh, it's got a refined thing and it gives you a, a connection back to, um, where modern brown liquor cocktails came from. They, they tended to come out of, uh, brandy or cognac if you could afford it, uh, before the whiskeys were as common. And, uh, that's also one that, uh, a, a lot of good cocktail places will easily be able to make for you, but, uh, you know, not to be pretentious about it, but it's also sending a signal that you're interested in, uh, escaping, uh, any cliches or traditions and, and going further back in time. And then you might uh, hit it off with a bartender and they'll say, if you like that, how about our, you want to try our Vucare? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. And uh, then go down, go down the path the bartender wants to lead you on. 
Right. You know, one of the things, yeah, there's plenty of bars, you know, around here in Houston and in the Woodlands, uh, you know, where I live. Um, but San Francisco in particular, uh, I haven't traveled nearly as much as you, but San Francisco, I find, has more bartenders who are bartenders. They aren't there. They're like they're they're not there as like a side job in college. They're not there because it was the only thing job they could find. Like they know their craft. Yep, yep, absolutely. San Francisco is that way. Uh, Seattle is largely that way. Seattle doesn't get the respect it deserves in its bar scene, in spite of places like Canon being there. But yeah, it it is amazing. If you haven't been there, um, Lalo in uh, Houston. I forget what neighborhood it's in. Lalo is a pretty good dive tiki bar that I really enjoy when I get there, which is not that often anymore. The only time I actually spent a lot of time in Houston, I was too young to drink. My, I had a sister that went to Rice, but uh, they didn't, they kept a close eye on me in those days. <laughs> well, uh, all right. Well, I think we will wrap up there, but uh, I, I honestly, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, oh, happy to do it. It was good chatting with you. Good conversation. Look, for, hopefully the next time we're in the same a conference hall, we will actually see each other and get a chance to catch up in person. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm only, uh, let's say, let's say I'm 80% sure I'll go to, uh, you know, Black Hat DEF CON. So, uh, you know, if I, if I make it there, uh, we can, uh, have a drink at Frankie's. All right. Sounds good. Good talking to you. All right. I'll talk to you later, man. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.